Hi, this is Alyssa McNamara-Reed, and I will be your host for the next two hours. Allow me to introduce myself. I am a certified financial planner practitioner and an investment advisor. I am co-owner of McNamara Financial Services, Inc. in Marshfield, Massachusetts. McNamara Financial is a federally registered investment advisor, and by my definition anyway, is a true family business. We work with clients like you every day, regular people that need help making sound financial decisions or people that want one less thing to worry about. I work with clients for a fee based on assets that I manage or an hourly or flat fee for creating financial plans. I am not compensated via commissions unless I have the pleasure of helping someone with their insurance needs. There are some things worth paying for, and perhaps a lifetime of financial security is one of them. I, of course, cannot guarantee that working with me will ensure a secure financial future. McNamara on Money has been a call-in talk radio show since 1990. I love hearing from listeners, and there truly are no dumb questions. In fact, I like the simple questions, because everyone should have the answer to those. Just don't call me asking for the next hot investment or which market is going to outperform this year. Number one, that's not the nature of this show. And number two, I have no idea. Any advice I give to a caller is meant to be generic in nature and should be verified with his or her own financial professionals. You will hear about a variety of topics on this show that relate to investments and personal finance. We try to cover topics that people can relate to regardless of their net worth or financial situation. And of course, we try to keep it interesting. I would crunch numbers for two hours or spreadsheet cash flows because I'm a total math nerd, but that wouldn't much make for good radio. Instead, I choose to educate people on topics surrounding big financial events in life, like marriage and divorce, kids in college, death of a loved one, career changes, and of course, retirement. I once heard that it is a smart man that knows what he doesn't know. I'm sure it was my dad that said that, and I'm also sure that it applies to women. That is why I invite guests onto my show that have expertise in different areas also related to personal finance. I feel it's important to note that the opinions of these professionals are not necessarily the opinions of McNamara Financial or any of its advisors. As long as we are on the subject of disclosure, I should note that while we may discuss investments and or markets on this show that past performance is not indicative of future results. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to McNamara on Money. I'm Alyssa McNamara-Reed, joined this morning by my husband and business partner, Kirk Reed, and we're talking about financial independence in honor of Independence Day. Happy weekend, everybody. Um, We were talking before the break about taking control, right? Taking control of your finances, the importance of paying attention to your finances as a as a means for being remaining uh, financially independent. And I just I think financial control is a huge component of that. So I was making the point before the break that, um, you know, not everyone needs to live on a budget. Certainly, you know, not everyone needs to um, cut back on things and, and do things differently. But I just think it's really important for people to know the numbers and um, know what's coming in the door, know what's going out the door in terms of expenses. And just like knowing is empowering. And having said that, there's a lot of people that don't really know where to start in terms of doing that. And it can be a lot of work and it can be a little bit overwhelming. But I think if you put the work in, you'll find that it's really worthwhile. Um, Number one, just to be aware and um, to be to have that control over your finances. But from our perspective as financial planners, it's really important to have good numbers in terms of expenses, average monthly, for example, when you do uh, like long-term modeling, when we do retirement planning for people, it's really, really important to have 
doesn't have to be perfect, but they should be pretty good, accurate numbers in terms of in terms of average monthly expenses because you we we can't do we can't prepare an accurate you know financial model or an accurate retirement plan for someone if we're just totally guessing on what they're spending monthly we need to know more about lifestyle and where money is spent so that we can prepare a good accurate a financial plan for someone. Everybody's different. You know, we can make guesses about stuff, but everybody's lifestyle and habits are different. So that's yeah, a if, huge. Yeah, go ahead. If you, you know, if you guess, you know, or if you know, if you round, if you round, let's say you round up, right? You know, you just, you know, you round up and say, you know, expenses are this. Yeah. And, you know, and that's what you use for your projection. And then, you know, your, you know, the, your odds of retiring might not look so good, and that's, but that's based on a kind of a bogus number. Yeah. So, and so you might, you might, you know, you might, you might end up working longer or, or, or adjusting your goals, you know, because maybe, yeah, maybe you didn't spend the time to just, you know, get, get the, get the real numbers, uh, and, and vice versa. If you, yeah. if you lowball, uh, you know, some, it's somewhere down the road and, you know, if you do retire, then you might say, oh man, my expenses are so much higher than I thought. And, you know, our portfolio withdrawal is so much bigger than we thought it was going to be. Yeah. And, and then you might end up you know, feeling, feeling stressed, you know, on that side and, and, and adjusting things and changing things that maybe you didn't, didn't want to or plan to. And so, yeah, getting, getting these accurate numbers is, is super critical to, you know, to do the best, you know, to do the best planning that you can do to make, you know, ensure a successful and, um, you know, hopefully realistic uh, retirement. Yeah. Um, So a lot of people don't know where to start and I was going to give them two options um, in terms of, well, the the easiest piece is figuring out how much you have to have net after taxes to live on. And then the second piece is tracking expenses. But when it comes to the first piece, um, it's important to know what you're working with. And like, I'm always surprised when there's some people, a lot of people that I ask you, yeah, how much money do you make? And they're like, uh, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I'm like, really? How do you, <laughs> I'm always surprised. But yeah, I guess it, again, people, sometimes people just don't pay attention or they knew what it was five years ago and they've had like some raises in pay and they're not really sure. And, um, yeah. So, okay. So in terms of, first of all, figuring out what you have to work with, there's, a harder, more accurate way, and then there's an easier way. So the harder, more accurate way, something that like we would practice as advisors, and and some people might do at home, which is where you're grabbing a tax return. Um, if you know your, you you do need to know your gross income. You can pull gross income off a pay stub or a W two, but there's like five five lines on a W-2 for gross income. It's so complicated. I wish the W-2s were more readable for the average person. Yeah. They're not. They're so difficult to understand. There's, you know, there's, there's all the, all the deductions. Yeah. There's the 401k, there's medical, there's, there's, you know, dental, there's, you know, disability, whatever. Yeah. So you got to figure out what, what's your actual, yeah, your actual gross uh, and then you can, you know, use that to, you know, cause then, then you need that to figure out what your taxes are. But then, yeah, there's so obviously there's the other deductions and things to get you down to your net, and yeah, it's it's pretty complicated for, for most people to try to decipher, you know, exactly what's going on there. Um, I guess you know you could always look at last year's tax return, you know, as far as what you know what your you know your total income is, and, and or or something like that. That might be maybe an easier way to get get the number. I, I you know just yeah, it depends. Yeah. Oh. I hear dogs in the background. What are oh, the dogs sorry. doing? It wasn't me. Yeah. I mean, I think the most accurate way is you would need to know your gross income. 
you would subtract, not for everybody, but for most people, you're going to subtract 7.65% for FICA taxes, which is Social Security and Medicare. Having said that, if you make more than 130-ish thousand, you're not paying 6.2% Social Security on dollars above that. So it's a little bit complicated. But if you make $130,000 or less, and if you're not a municipal employee, in other words, if you're a Social Security paying employee, so not a teacher, not a firefighter, a police officer, a town worker, et cetera, if you're in the private sector and you make $130,000 or less, um, then you'd take your gross income. You take away 7.65% for payroll taxes. We call that FICA. That's Social Security and Medicare. I don't even know what FICA stands for. Can you Google that? Now I'm curious. Um, Then you take away what you put in your 401k or... The Federal Insurance Contribution Act. Oh, okay. Federal Insurance. Okay. Um, Okay. So gross income minus 7.65% of that. Again, if you make 130000 or less. Minus what you put in your 401k, hopefully you put money in your 401k, minus federal taxes, minus state taxes. You can find and, your and federal... Not to, not to confuse things, but, you know, Social Security only goes up to a certain amount, you know, so if you, if you make, right? If you make right, that's money. why I said if you make $130,000 or less. Oh, sorry, I That's that simple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's more complicated if you make more than that. I was looking at FICA, I think. Yeah, okay. <laughs> You can find, so if you pull out your tax return, you can find your total tax. I think it's on the second page of the 1040. Now there's like a new 1040, so I was getting confused. I think it's on the second page of the new 1040. Either, either the first or, or the, the very second, bottom. Or but anyway, you're looking on your federal tax return, you're looking for the line called total tax. And there's the same line called total tax. I think on the state return. So if you're a Massachusetts resident, I think it's called total tax 5.25% or something like that. Um, But if you have a tax return handy, you can find the line. But that's like the most accurate way to figure out what you're working with. I suppose if you're on a variable income, like if you're in sales or commission structure or something, that's not going to be super accurate if your income varies over time. Um, but if you're on a salary, and again, if it's 130000 or less, that's the most accurate way to know what you're working with in terms of your disposable after-tax income. That would be annual, and then you would divide by 12. Did you find the light on, line item for total tax? Where is it? Oh, I thought you were looking at the on the 1040. I had gra- I thought I had my an old tax return sitting there, but it was just the, uh, just the pay stuff. Oh, okay. So. so anyway, that's one way to do it. I think... So that's accurate, but perhaps a little bit complicated multi-step. The easier way to do it is to grab your pay stub and to look at your net pay and multiply by however many pay periods you have. And then if you're married, you would do the same thing for your spouse and add them together. So I'm looking at an example pay stub. This is an actual pay stub. Um, for a client and it'll show various items on your pay stub. Of course, it will show gross pay. It will show deductions, federal, state, social security, Medicare, um, mass, uh, family leave is now a new line item there. Medical dental 401k. It'll show all those things on your pay stub. But what you really want to do is grab the line that says net pay. And most people are going to be multiplying by 26 or 24. It depends on if you're paid every two weeks or twice a month. Some people are paid on like the 1st and the 15th. 
and that's twice a month, and that's you're multiplying by 24 paychecks. It seems like more people are paid every two weeks, so you actually get 26 paychecks throughout the year. So that's the easiest way to do it. It's not perfect because sometimes people owe taxes at the end of the year. Sometimes people get a big tax return. So we're not you're not factoring in the difference at tax time when you use this method, but it's easier for most people and if you don't have huge tax surprises, like if you're not getting a very large return or if you're not owing a significant amount at tax time, then this works just fine. So net pay, for again, for most people, times 26. Do the same thing for your spouse if you're married. And that's an easier way to figure out what you're working with in terms of disposable after-tax income. So that's like where you would start. And then, of course, the second half of this uh, exercise in terms of budgeting is is what's going out the door. So, of course, itemizing expenses is a lot more difficult than figuring out that sort of one or two line items that are coming in the door. There's a lot of line items um, going out the door. And, and, you know, we've gone through this exercise uh, for ourselves, but also for clients so many times. I, I just think it's You can go line by line through your credit card or through your bank account. I just think it's better to start with like some sort of a template where like we have a budget worksheet and and we actually have it on our website and people can um, go grab that. But I think it's better to start with what are like what are the broad categories of expenses that most people have and category by category, then I'll go find the information I need to fill it in. I think that's easier than literally going line by line and just like making a big, giant, complicated spreadsheet. Um, so actually, if you we put this on our website. So if you go to McNamaraFinancial.com and click on at the top, there's a menu at the top and there's one on the far right that says for clients. But even if you're not a client, we'll make this available to our listeners. So click on for clients. And then there's a, a box that says pertinent documents. I'm pretty sure it's there. I hope it's there. It's like a little envelope. I need a new. Uh, I need a new image for that. Yeah, click on pertinent documents and then you'll see budget worksheet. So you can click on that and it will download an ex- our Excel version of our budget worksheet. And it's, oh, you might have to play around with formatting like I do on my computer where it's formatting onto two pages instead of one. That's going to frustrate me. Um, but you can, really what I did there is I um, just pulled like broad categories of where people spend money. So housing, food, auto, uh, transportation, second property, debt, health and dental. Um, so like broad categories there. And then with within those broad categories, there's line items for, again, where most people might spend their money. Um, it's perhaps not all inclusive, um, but that's a great place to start. I think. And, um, you know, just kind of go line by line, cross out the ones or, you know, zero or NA if not applicable, and then just go into your credit card uh, bank statement and figure out um, numbers for the rest of them. I I think that's the best way to do it. It takes a lot of time. It's a big pain, but it's so worth it. I, I really think it's worth it no matter your financial circumstances. It's absolutely worth it if you're building debt, like if you're cash, what we call cash flow negative, meaning if you're spending too much and you're having to put things on a credit card and you can't pay the credit card off. So if you're cash flow negative, this is 
the first thing you're going to do urgently and, and figure out where the money is going and where you can cut back so that you're not cash flow negative anymore. You need to look at this and figure out where you can make changes. And not only that, make the changes, of course. I also think this is important for people that are financially comfortable, that your savings account balance might be growing. You might be pitting your retirement savings targets, maxing a 401k, whatever it is. I still think it's important because you wouldn't believe how many people go through this. And even if they're fairly well off, you know, good income earners, you know, good savers, They'll do, they'll go through this. I'm like, I can't believe I spent so much money on dining out. Just for example, everyone wants to dine out this summer, right? But just, you know, that, that's used to be fairly common. I can't believe that's crazy, that number, right? And so it's just kind of eye opening. And then, you know, and then people get to make their own decisions. Like maybe they don't want to be spending that much money on say dining out. Maybe they want that money to go somewhere else. And so it's, again, it's like, it's, it's giving you control of your money, which is, incredibly important or if there's something you know maybe there's maybe a conversation that you're having you know with your spouse or partner or whatever and you know it's like well something came up that you want to do right some you know maybe a big project or a trip and you know you're not quite sure if you can afford it or you feel uncomfortable spending the money and so if you had this data available or to go through this exercise then you can see okay well if we want to make this work you know, is there something, is there something that we are spending a lot of money on that we could, you know, that we could reduce uh, or, or cut out so that we can make this other, this other goal happen? So it's just, again, it's just a great reason to have this data, you know, uh, available and hopefully fairly recent. So you can, you know, make those, yeah. you know, make those adjustments and to make, so, you know, as your, as your goals change, um, you know, maybe that means making a lifestyle change somewhere else, but um you know, it's just, it's so, it's so valuable to have it. Yeah. Um, do you have like a lot of four legged and two legged friends visiting you in the uh, basement in studio the there? Room, but, but yeah, apparently they're audible. Yeah. They're a little bit audible. That's okay. Right. I'll put, that's I'll real put, life. I'll, I'll put them on mute. That's work life balance right there. Yeah. Put yeah. them on mute. <laughs> um, okay. Anything else on that? I, I guess I wanted to transition. That was, I just, when I was thinking about you know, what does it mean to be financially independent? I think the most important thing there was just being able to just take control and be in control and know the numbers and, and, and make the decisions that are right for you and your family. And, and people spend, should spend money where they want to, and they should spend money on things that they value and, and based on their lifestyle choices and values and preferences and, and, so I just I think that that's huge, and I think that everyone should do it, and you don't have to um, do it every day or every week. But going through that exercise and just sort of freshening it up every year or so is is huge. Um, and again, incredibly, incredibly, incredibly valuable as you approach retirement and start doing some detailed modeling in terms of when can I retire? Can I slow down? Can I leave this job and, and consult? Can I? leave my high stress job and do something different? Do I have enough in my 401k? Can I, you know, am I on a good track for retirement? Can I retire early? All those questions that people have that you need to have gone through this exercise for us to answer those and for you to answer that for yourself if you're not working with a professional. Okay. Ready to transition. We've got like, I don't know, eight or nine minutes before we need to take a break anyway. And I just wanted to spend um, a few minutes talking about, I guess I'm going to be sexist for a minute and I'm going to talk about women and um, as it pertains to their financial independence, 
if they were to separate from a spouse. I've met a lot of um, divorced women in my career, and it can be divorce is financially challenging for everybody involved. I, from my perspective, it seems that it's often more financially challenging for the wife. And that is generally because, well, I I don't, you know, maybe, you know, wage gaps and stuff like that. I, I, I don't think that that's always the case anymore. I think that we have some wage equality, you know, between men and women. Maybe it's not perfect, but it seems to be uh, much better than it used to be. But I think it's because, like, often women take time off when their kids are young. And, again, I, I have to be careful here because I th- have said so many times on this show when this topic has come up, I think it's awesome when women take time off to be with their kids. I never did that. I, I to, like, sl- you know, slowed down and cut back my hours. But I never you know, took years off. And um, I don't think I would have been capable of it. <laughs> but, you know, I guess I maybe I would have risen to the occasion. But I think it's awesome when women do that and can spend those that time and those years with their family. I think that that's really great. And but from a financial perspective, I think it can lead to some difficult situations. So like, if you think about, um, you know, a woman who took five or 10 years off when her kids were young, right? Maybe she had a great successful career, made great money, but then took five or 10 years off and then re-enters the workforce. Her income at that time is quite likely either, I, I don't know if I can say the word reduce, but it's not, probably not really close to what it would have been if she had continued working, right? So maybe, and maybe she has to go into a different career or maybe she has to, you know, she takes on something part-time. Maybe there's, you know, and again, this isn't for everybody, but I think that there's a lot of situations where then the income potential is just not as great. And so, and then if you fast forward and if there is a situation where there's a divorce, then it can just be so hard for that you know, I'm, again, I'm being sexist and I totally know it, but it is often the woman. It can be so hard to make, to be financially independent in that situation. And so, you know, again, I'm approaching this purely from a financial perspective right now, but my, my, my thinking is um, nobody ever thinks they're going to separate, right? Or get divorced. But my thinking is I, Again, purely from a financial perspective, I hate. I hope there's not women out there that hate me for saying this, but just to be able to work even part time or keep your foot in the door while kids are young to to ensure maybe it, maybe ensure is not the right word, but to increase chances of of having more favorable income later on and and keeping up your skills and so that you can, you know, if that were to unfold in your future, then you would have a much better chance likely of being able to be financially independent if you were ever on your own. Does that make sense? And this is such a sensitive topic, but I just, I meet, I've met so many divorced women and I love working with divorced women. It's a great, it's a great, you know, I, I let's be able to help them and, and, and help them work toward financial independence and all that stuff. And I think, well, I think, yeah, I think, no, I think you're right. I mean, I, I agree with that. I think, um, I think staying, you know, staying if it's, you know, yeah, part-time or, you know, very limited capacity, but yeah, yeah. I mean, even just, 
yes, financially, but also like, you know, keeping your mind sharp, right? And, you know, yeah. and staying up to date with changes in, you know, whatever that career is that you're working in, you know, you're, you know, you want to stay, you know, because you have to try to come back in five years later or whatever, yeah. you know, so many things could have changed, uh, you know, the, you know, what the, the culture, the atmosphere, um, and yeah, just so to have your kind of your, your, your finger or your toe in there, and, and not lose touch with what's, you know, what's going on. I think that's very important too, because yeah. Yeah, you might feel overwhelmed, you know, trying to get back in. And so, you, you know, that might be, you know, off-putting. And uh, so I think, yeah, I think there's, there's many reasons to try to, you know, stay involved, even if it's, you know, in a limited capacity. Yeah. And that's such a sensitive topic, but, but, and again, I, I just, I do think it's so awesome when women take time off to be with their kids. And sometimes, you know, the cost of healthcare, sometimes it just doesn't, you know, makes sense to be, you know, working for X dollars and paying X dollars in daycare. And it's like, why am I working? You know, and, and, and financially that it doesn't make sense for a lot of people, not to mention it's so hard to um, go to work and leave your kids, especially your young kids for like the whole day. Right. Or, you know, and so, and so I totally get it from a personal perspective, but that was my, the, the discussion there was coming from a purely financial perspective, um, and, and that couples do get divorced. And um, I just see a lot of women that really struggle to make things work financially if and, and largely it's when they had taken time off and they just don't have the earnings ability that their spouse does. And even when there's alimony and child support and stuff like that, it's just not the same, especially if you factor in that oftentimes the woman is trying to maintain the family home, right, which can be quite costly for one person to maintain the family home right and and so i mean you know so anyway i i'll I'll stop there i know that's kind of a touchy subject but i just i think the ability if at where possible if at all for moms to be able to work a little bit part-time per diem whatever um and and have a little you know and still achieve that work-life balance when their kids are young i just think from a financial perspective that that's it's huge it's incredibly beneficial later on. Okay, I'll stop there. I wanted to... Okay, so last segment, we've got a couple minutes before we need to take a break, and then we'll talk um, after the break about <clears throat> later in life ensuring financial independence or, or things to think about when we we talk about financial independence later in life. In other words, um, you know, one concern I hear from older clients is... I don't want to be a burden on my kids. What if I need care? What if it, what if I go through my money? You know, so wanted to touch on that. And we'll do that after the break. You're listening to McNamara on Money. I'm Alyssa McNamara-Reed. If you ever miss our shows on Saturday mornings, you can check out our podcast. We turn all of our shows into podcasts. Um, so you can just search us on the your podcast app. Search McNamara on Money. You can find out more about us at McNamaraFinancial.com. We're just taking a break and we'll be right back. My daughter wants a pair of shoes that have those little wheels built in to make them skates. I told her she has to wait until her birthday, which is 167 days away, an eternity for a six-year-old. This idea of delayed gratification is all too uncommon in our society, but is an underlying theme with the clients that I work with. Not many people can build a nest egg and thus a secure financial future by being impulsive. This is Alyssa McNamara-Reed with McNamara Financial in Marshfield. Give me a call if I can help you with your delayed gratification, which I'm sure will be worth the wait. 
You're listening to McNamara on Money. I'm Alyssa McNamara-Reed. Happy 4th of July, everybody. Uh, We wanted to talk today about financial independence and sort of what that means and things to think about and what you can do to achieve that, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So we've talked about a lot of things from younger adults being uh, financially independent of their parents, um, you know, uh, ways to take control of your finances and, and remain financially independent for life. And we talked about women and the importance of um, of ensuring financial independence if they are on their own post-marriage, etc. Um, and now we're going to talk about financial independence later in life in terms of ensuring or, um, you know, hoping to always remain financially independent of your adult children. I certainly think that that's a concern for many people. I hear that a lot. And yeah, so so just things to think about there. I mean, I think that if we think about all of our retiree clients, Kirk, right, the first concern is I don't want to live, I don't want to outlive my money, right? Any Any retiree, right, is... Um, hoping for that, planning for that, um, consults us for that. That's a huge uh, component of what we do for our clients. And I think probably the second concern is what happens if I need care? What what happens if I spend all my money on it? What what I don't want to be a burden on my kids. I, I want to be financially independent even if that happens. So yeah, so you know, there there's ways to plan for that. And having said that, not a lot of people want to plan for that it, because it's hard <laughs> and costly. But let's just talk through it anyway. So, first of all, you know, quite quite simply, to rem- you know, factoring out long term care for a minute, like custodial care, etc. Just you know, from the perspective of I'm healthy indefinitely and I can care for myself, but I still don't want to be a burden on my kids. I mean, that's just, from our perspective, quite simple. That's just, you know, watching rates of withdrawal from the portfolio based on age, you know, doing some modeling to make sure that, um, or to, to, for the, you know, for the goal of not outliving your money. I mean, that, that's just, that's what we do for our clients, right? That's just, planning for your money to last for your lifetime, however long that might be. And and we have to make guesses on that. Nobody really knows. Um, but that's just monitoring withdrawal rates from the portfolio over time and maybe making changes when we have bad markets and temporarily cutting back if we need to, et cetera. So that's, you know, we can do all sorts of modeling for that. That's pretty simple. Uh, if you live a really long life, it can be difficult in terms of making assets last to age 100 or 105 versus 85. But but that's just like math and, and watching how much you're drawing annually. Then if you start factoring in what if someone needs long-term care, then it gets more complicated. And there's really three ways to plan for someone needing care in terms of financially planning for it. One of them is just to plan to use your own assets. The other one is to purchase insurance. And the other one is to rely on the state. And that third one is really not a good plan from my perspective, unless you already have very little in the way of assets. Um, And and the insurance isn't affordable to you anyway, likely. The first one is what people would call it self-insuring. You know, some people, they don't want to purchase the insurance. We'll talk about that a little bit, but... Very few people want to purchase long-term care insurance. We'll talk about why in a minute. And, and some people have enough assets 
or they think they have enough assets to self-insure, meaning whatever costs come my way in terms of, you know, if I need care later on, me or my spouse, we have these assets and we can use them to pay for our care. I think in order to do that prudently, people need to really should like set aside a lump sum of money that would be spent on care. Having said that, it's not often that people actually want to do that, right? I mean, I don't know what discussions you have with clients, Kirk, but generally when we're doing retirement planning, it's like, here are the assets and we're going to plan for retirement and, and these assets are on the table to be utilized for your retirement needs. And once someone puts together a, once we work through a retirement scenario that looks successful and looks like you, this person can retire at age whatever, 65, whatever, then how often do they want to take the next step? And, you know, what if we said, well, let's take this half a million dollars here and we're going to earmark that for long-term care services because you don't have the insurance and now we're going to plan for retirement and now you can't retire until 70. Nobody ever wants to do that, right? It's just not, it's not, I don't know if it's not realistic. It's just, nobody really knows if they're going to need care. So it's, it, it, it's hard for them to like mentally make that step and, and segregate the assets in that way. Um, and it makes it much harder to plan for retirement because yet all of a sudden you need a lot more in your nest egg to pull off a successful retirement and have, and it should be X hundreds of thousands of dollars earmarked for long-term care. But right, I mean, I mean, it's, it's very hard to make that leap from here's a successful retirement plan. You have enough assets to, to do this at your desired age to now I'm going to peel off what, three to $500,000 to earmark that for paying for care. And then here's how it changes things. Those are really hard conversations to have. And it's not often that people want to plan in that way, right? They're kind of like, oh, you know, I, so I, I just think it's a little bit planning in that regard is a prudent way to go, but it's not super realistic for people. The other way to plan for being able to remain independent financially independent later in life again independent of your adult children is to purchase long-term care insurance in the event that you need long-term care there was i was just we had a show recently where we were just going over statistics right was it like two percent of the population has long-term care insurance or something like that or like seven percent of adults age over some 40 or something yeah or, i forget the number but it was, it was very pretty low, low. Very yeah low. It's it's not a popular insurance. It is expensive. But when you think about... It's expensive, I guess, relative to what other things in life cost. It's expensive, and it's expensive relative to what people pay for life insurance. Like, you know, many, many uh, people carry term life insurance through their life, right? Or life insurance through their uh, employer, and it's pretty cheap. And term life insurance, when you buy it young, when you're young with kids, is really cheap. And and so in comparison to that, long-term care insurance is not cheap. It's expensive relative to those things. But if you compare the premiums that you pay to the amount of money accessible to you, if and when you need care... It's really not expensive. I mean, it's leverage, right? You could pay, you know, five grand a year for access to, I don't know, $350,000 for 
uh, of dollars for if you need long-term care. I mean, nobody would look at those numbers and say that's so expensive. It's it's leverage. You know, I'm going to yeah. pay this premium in case I need this money. And it's just like, it's just like any other insurance, yeah. right? You know, you you know, you buy your car insurance because you know you're trying to protect yourself against you know a catastrophic uh, event, uh, and you could you know you could certainly say you know going into a nursing home for 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 you know an extended period of time in particular is a pretty catastrophic event from a financial point of view. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, you can buy this insurance to help protect, you know, protect you against that. Uh, and, and the numbers work in roughly the same way that as you, you know, as you said, the leverage is, is good there. I mean, the amount that you pay in premiums versus yeah. the potential, the potential, you know, money that you could recoup from the policy. Uh, it, it is worth it, you know, quote unquote, from a, you know, from a, a multiplier or, or, you know, multiplication point, point of view. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, the premiums are not, they're not inexpensive, but, but when you, yeah, but when you relate them to the cost, with the cost of care, they yeah. are in line, uh, you know, with, with, with that, what, what those numbers are. So yeah, the whole, the whole thing, the whole nursing home thing is, is expensive. And so therefore the premiums are going to be kind of expensive too. Yeah. I, b- I believe in long-term care insurance. I think it's very appropriate for a lot of people, especially like a lot of people we work with that have assets and they have a net worth. They have uh, kids. M- many of them do anyway. And I think it's very appropriate. It's hard for people to wrap their heads around it. And it's not super often that they want to move forward with that insurance. But I believe in it. And I believe that small policies are better than none at all. Because how many... I mean... I, I have received so many calls over the years from family, like from, you know, clients, families, or or just people calling and asking questions that aren't even clients about this is happening. You know, this person's going into a nursing home. What can we do to protect the assets? And when when it's that when when it's imminent, it's there, there's nothing. There's almost always there's not always not there's not literally nothing, but there, there's not much you can do in many situations when you don't plan ahead. I believe in in long-term care insurance. I wish it was utilized more. And maybe it will going forward. They're sort of doing a little bit of restructuring and there's some different options now. And we can talk about that a little bit. But, you know, I I also, the long-term care insurance is not, it's not, generally people wouldn't purchase policies that would pay for everything if if someone needed care in the future, right? It's not really meant it doesn't have to be structured, and in my opinion, it's not really meant to pay everything later on, but it serves as something that allows your other financial assets to last a lot longer. And so, you know, somebody, for example, might buy long-term care insurance that pays $6,000 a month if, some, if, the, if the person needs care. Well, maybe it costs them eight or 9000 a month. And so it's really not, again, it's so with those numbers, it's not really structured to pay for everything, but that's okay. There might be, you know, social security income or pension or whatever to fill in the gap and also other assets. It's meant to be a complement to your other assets and it stretches the life of your real financial assets in, in it, 
enhances increases the ability for you to leave a legacy to your kids, which is really, in my opinion, the reason that many people would purchase long-term care insurance is because they don't want to see assets drained and their kids receive nothing. Many people want to leave a legacy. They want to leave financial assets to their kids. They want to know that their kids are going to have a little windfall and their life is a little bit easier when, when they pass and, um, financially anyway. And, um, and that's important to a lot of people. So I, I think the insurance is a great way to plan for someone to remain financially independent of their adult kids and other reasons. But we're talking about independence today. So um, I think it's huge and I think it's underutilized. And I think that's unfortunate. I try to talk to all my clients where appropriate for at whatever age is appropriate to have that conversation. Um, and I it's, you know, less than 50 percent really like to and even entertain the conversation and, and take steps to move forward. And I think that that's too bad. I, I, can I, can I give a number? Um, so mm-hmm. like, you know, I was looking up, uh, you know, what are the current, you know, current costs, right? So if you do need to go into a nursing home, now this is, I was just going to give like the, you know, for, so for a private nursing, you know, private room, you know, which yeah. is going to be expensive, but just to, uh, to give a big number. So Current number, I got this off of the, you know, the AARP website. Okay. Uh, so for, you know, for in, in the, in our area. So in this, this part of Massachusetts, uh, private nursing home cost is 13550 a month, right? So multiply by 12 months, that's $162,000, uh, you know, for, for a year. Yeah. And I, you know, my, you know, my understanding is that for somebody that that does require this care, you know, the average, uh, you know, duration of the stay is some, you know, it's like what, two and a half to three years. Is that, yeah. is that, would you agree with that? So, yeah. I mean, so if you multiply that by three, you know, that's, you know, we're getting close to $500,000. Um, and that's in, and that's in today's dollars. Uh, and so that, you know, that yeah. number grows quite a bit, you know, each year, um, you know, more than, you know, more than, you know, general inflation uh so that that's it's, it's a big number today that's going to continue to get bigger and bigger as time goes on yeah you might want to mute for a moment there you go um pardon our children in background they are not they don't know how to be independent of their parents even within the home these days but Finan- financially or otherwise i know but you know what i will be so sad the day that they're not like three feet away from me at all times i'm gonna ball my eyes out i know it all right. And, and OK. And, and so just one step further on that. Another way that people plan for a long term care event is so. So we talked about the first two ways. I'm going to use my own money or I'm going to buy the insurance. Very few people want to do really either of those. We just t- sort of talked about why a lot of people take the third route, which is I'm going to do what I can legally to uh, structure my assets in such a way that I might qualify for state aid if I need an extended period of long-term care. So what a lot of people do is they um, essentially give assets away like many people give away the the ownership of their home, right? They might have significant equity in a home and they might uh, do what's called an irrevocable or a third-party trust and they might just give up ownership of it. They can remain in the home, um, but they give up ownership. Their kids are trustees of the trust and, then, and they're foregoing ability to access equity in that home. 
and essentially uh, giving it, uh, structuring it so that if five years pass, then and then if they ever need to apply for Medicaid, then that asset is not looked at by the state. Um, and it's out of their estate and, and they could qualify for Medicaid having, having uh, in advance given away ownership of a large asset. And again, I, and I'm not an attorney and I, and I know some of the attorneys can structure these things. And I don't know, I've sort of heard them say that they're like our kind of ways for money to be accessed <laughs> out of these trusts. And I'm not privy to all that, but my understanding is that if you give away an asset, you give away an asset and it's not accessible to you anymore. And so, you know, I, I, I do, there have been times where I've recommended that to clients. And, and I do think that that there are times when that's appropriate um, based on their preferences and the situation. I, but from a financial independence perspective, I, I do caution people when they express interest in doing this in that if you're Think about a situation where you've given away, uh, for example, your home, the equity in your home. Let's say it's half a million dollars. Let's say you never need care and you live to be 100. Do your other, are your other assets going to last that long? And it, was it wise for you to give up ability to access a half a million dollars of equity in your home. What if what if you need that to live your life, to buy your groceries and, you know, pay your expenses and maybe travel and um and that type of stuff. So I I I think it's a big 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 decision. This is an avenue that a lot of people take. It's of the three avenues we talked for planning for long-term care, this is in my experience the most popular. There's a lot to be considered. And I, and again, from the perspective of financial independence, I would question if that is a good move. And and I would again, that's not uh, not to say it's not appropriate for many families. And and there again, full disclosure, there have certainly been times when I've told people to look into it, and I've agreed that that's appropriate. But I, but I, you just have to be aware that there there could be a situation where um, you never need to apply for Medicaid. And would you have benefited from ability to use some of that money in your life? And that's just a question, I guess. Big question. It's a big question. And when I've had, you know, ideally, if you, if you or someone in your family is considering this, it, um, whether it's for a home or whether it's for even even a bigger decision, if you're putting assets like a like an investment account into this trust, you can't put a retirement account in. But um, if you have other assets, non-retirement type, even bigger decision to put that type of money uh, to put that type of asset in, in this type of a trust. And um, ideally, if you're going in that direction, it's great to have your financial professional and your attorney working together and making sure from both angles it makes sense. Um, like when I've had clients sort of go through this and, you know, call me and say, look, I'm thinking about doing this and how much should I put in there and can I put the house in there? And and ideally, it's great to like work through some scenarios in terms of, hey, let's pick up this asset, pretend you don't have it in your life because you are going to be giving it away and let's make sure everything else looks fine. That's the ideal way to do it and not just... 
uh, move forward without really, really thinking about if you ever are going to need access to that money. Again, under the heading of remaining financially independent, what if you run out of your other assets? You want to make sure that that doesn't happen and that you have enough elsewhere that that wouldn't happen. So ideally, it's good to, you know, have those conversations and really take that decision, not take that decision lightly, really go slow with um, with that. Okay, Um, so we talked about all right, what else under there Um, that was talking about financially independent later in life? Yeah, and I, and I, you know, know, I have I just one, you know, one thought, Um, you know, sometimes, you know, when, you know, perhaps a parent. Uh, you know, is, is getting on in years and, you know, they're thinking about, um, you know, gifting, right. You know, maybe, oh, yeah. maybe gifting some money to, you know, to their children or grandchildren. Um, and which is certainly a terrific idea. And I know that that's, you know, that's, that can be a high priority for some folks, but, but again, when it comes to financial, you know, independence, you know, can you afford to do that? Mm. And, you know, again, you know, talking about, well, how, you know, how long are you going to live? Uh, you know, are you going to require care? Um, and, you know, just being kind of aware of those things when you, you know, start helping out your kids or, or just giving them money because, because you want to, and that, you know, whether or not they need it, um, you know, just, you know, thinking about making sure that that's part of your plan and, you know, maybe talk that over with, you know, with your financial advisor before you start, you know, giving away large sums of money because, you know, if, 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 if you end up needing that money, um, now, you know, so I guess the question, you know, that you have to prioritize, right? Is it, you know, is it, you know, do you want to, you know, give money to your kids or do you want to, you know, hopefully not be a burden, right? At some point, you know, and trying to, trying to walk that, walk that line. Um, I know that's something that we talk to clients about sometimes, but, you know, gifting, you know, gifting and, um, you know, we usually, will, you know, we'll update their plan, right? And say, okay, yeah, if you give away, you know, $20,000, does that, does that have, you know, zero effect on your, on your long-term projections? Does it, you know, or does it have a, does it have a big effect? And, and yeah. depending on the outcome, then obviously, you know, then ultimately it's up to the client to decide if they want to, if they want to do it or not. But, um, but that's another one that can potentially affect yeah. independent, you know, financial independence for, a, um, you know, for somebody, you know, an older adult. Yeah. We actually, we have like what, five minutes left. We haven't talked about fire. You brought that up actually this morning. Um, and it was funny because I'm in studio today and Kirk is home with the kids and he sends me a text and it says, all it says is fire. And I'm like, Oh my God. As soon as, soon as I sent, that's why I sent, I sent the follow up. Yeah. You did. You said it really quick. And I'm like, of course, I'm like, oh, my God, there's a fire in the house. Why is he still sitting at the computer? Because I could see you on the Zoom. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, no, there's and I actually haven't done any reading about this lately. I don't really know if this is still a a popular thing in terms of the acronym anyway. Um, But FIRE stands for Financial Independence Retire Early. It was like this. I don't know if we started reading about it five or ten years ago. Um, Just sort of this um, concept of millennials uh wanting to retire early they wanted to i don't know there was like the school of thought that they wanted to sort of redefine retirement and um you know instead of i work 40 years and then i stop it was you know the concept is like i work for five or ten years and then i take a sabbatical and then i work for five or ten years and then i take a sabbatical and, and, and it's more like enjoying the concept was like 
being able to enjoy free time and um, being able to enjoy life while you're young and healthy because, you know, you never know. If you work 40 years and then stop working, you never know how long you're going to live. And and that's really, you know, we've known clients that have retired and passed away a year later. And I mean, that, you know, that's just the most awful, awful situation. And um, so, yeah, I think that I actually haven't read about it recently, but I do have conversations with particularly younger clients about this and i guess you know under the heading of financial independence it's kind of like you know of course we've we've talked about how it you know taking control of your finances is important especially if you're going to do something like this right you need to be in control you need to have a plan um of course the money available to you for that sabbatical because you're probably not getting a severance from your employer you're just taking a year off and you need to make make it work on your own um, and then become reemployed, right? That That's something that scares me a little bit. You're taking a year or two off. Are you going to be able to just jump right back in and make the same amount of money? I don't know. That's something that worries me. Um, but I think it's like, again, under the, under the heading of the, the, the term financial independence can in, in this regard, I think it kind of means like financial independence, independence from like corporate america right like independence from the rat race you know into and and i think it's really cool um from from that perspective i being a financial planner i think that there's certainly a lot of things to think about and a lot of red flags and a lot of planning that needs to be done um and i've helped some clients with this and it's kind of fun but um it's, I mean, a little really, bit scary nonetheless really- the, I mean, the gist of it is that it's just aggressive, aggressive saving you yeah. know, from, you know, from day one yeah. and, you know, keeping your expenses really, really low um, and basically saving, like saving like at least half of your income. Um, so, yeah. the, you know, to, to make it work, I mean, the, you know, you have to say, yeah, you're saving basically between like 50 to 75% of what you make, uh, you know, so your expenses are like, super super low yeah um but you know but but this is if that's her priority right you want to um you know make make some money and and save it and then you know and it doesn't necessarily mean you know full retirement it could just mean that now you have the flexibility of taking on maybe a part-time job something that maybe you enjoy yeah you're not sort of forced into you know some you know lifelong career of you know high stress you know corporate america that you don't want to be in like like you said you know so it's giving you that freedom and independence to uh maybe maybe do something you like and not have the stress of worrying about how much money you make yeah it can be done and the only people i've known you only have a minute okay it can be done the only people the only clients i've known that have done it are all single i don't know anyone that has a family that's doing this or at least when they're planning for it, they're single. Maybe things change, but um, families are expensive. Gotta love them. Wouldn't, yeah. Couldn't imagine life without my kids, but life is expensive with them. Alrighty, that is it. We got to wrap up. Thanks for listening. Happy 4th of July. I hope everyone enjoyed that show uh, about financial independence. You're listening to McNamara on Money. I'm Alyssa McNamara-Reed. Check out our podcast. You can search your podcast app for McNamara on Money. If you ever miss a show, we turn them all into podcasts. Um, You can find out more about me and my husband, Kirk Reed, at McNamaraFinancial.com. I hope everyone has a lovely weekend. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time. (laughs) Bye-bye. 